Our guest speaker this morning is uh, a man whom I have a great deal of respect. I'll give him a, a more full introduction before his sermon later this morning. Um, but it's Dr. Everett Hufford from Harding School of Theology. He's been um, a professor of mine at Harding School of Theology and a dean there as well. And so um, he's been here over the weekend to help our elders and deacons and ministers uh, serve the church better um, in our special circumstances and time of transition that we're in now. And it's gone really well so far. He's been a, a great encouragement. We met with him for several hours yesterday, and I'm looking forward to what he has to say this morning. So, Dr. Hufford, um, the audience is yours. Thank you. Good morning. I'm just checking the mic. It's not up yet, right? Now, okay, here we are. Now, somebody can hear me. Good to be with you. It really is. I appreciate her running me around and taking good care of me and putting me up for the night. And I tell you, um, if you ever want to trade deacons, we'll take the one that can cook brisket. <laughs> Wait, I saw him a while ago. Where is he? Oh, there he is. That's right. In case you want to come to Memphis, because... You know, I know I'm in, you know, pulled pork territory, but I really like brisket. So I was in Dallas the day before yesterday, and the first thing I did was go get brisket. And then I had it again last night, and it was even better than what I had in Dallas. So I'm, I'm feeling great. What are you doing for lunch today? <laughs> really appreciate it. Uh, I love the church. I'm third generation, both sides of my family. My granddad was uh, a very poor farmer in uh, Missouri that is he didn't have much not that he was a bad farmer he just didn't have much of a farm and uh, there was a circuit riding preacher that came by and started Bible studies he was another farmer from, we don't, I really haven't been able to trace who it was um, that started having Bible studies with my granddad and his brother with Roy and Elza and um, they were both baptized um, my granddad was illiterate uh, he taught himself to read from the Bible. Uh, later became an elder. He had uh, three sons and two daughters. The three sons became elders, and the two do- I mean, became preachers, and the two daughters married preachers. That's how bad farming was in Missouri. <laughs> they uh, they had a kind of a two room house, a shack. I mean, it, if you look at the shack, the only picture I've ever seen of him is on the front porch. It was kind of shack actually making brooms. I mean, it was just, they, they came out of poverty. But all their sons, all three sons, not only went to, through school, through college, and all three did master's degrees. So that, that's a pretty big change. And all of them were. My oldest uncle was the president of Northeastern Christian College, priest in Chicago and Philadelphia. Uh, the second uncle taught, was a missionary in Nigeria, taught uh, missions at Fried Hardeman. And my dad was a missionary in the Middle East 13 years and taught at Fried Hardeman and Harding. And so I, I'm just saying that, not to say I got a pedigree or anything. It's just my life has just been deeply embedded in some incredibly good people, not only just in my family, but in people I've known. I, I, I can't count the people that have blessed my life. And that wouldn't happen without the church. Paul, as he wrote to the church in Ephesus, said, To him be glory 
or honor in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations. We know how much, how well Jesus honored God, right? I mean, even Jesus said, I honor the one who sent me. He who honors me honors the one who sent me. And he says, and so Paul's thinking is, Jesus did that. His job was done. He honored God and did a great job of it. Now he says, it's up to the church to do it. To him be honor in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations. So we've got a pretty large responsibility in terms of what we do as God's people to truly honor God. Sometimes we do it better than others. Uh, We have tough times. We have good times as any family would. And what I've been doing lately is there's several interests I have. One is how do you transition people from you know to become believers in Christ and then to grow from sort of passive followers of Christ to active followers of Christ to leaders and mentors. I'm going to talk about that. I call it leader loop. I'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, another concern I have is how we how we function by consensus because I, I've found in, in a number of ways that consensus is very tough for us as Americans because we're so individualistic. And we all have our opinions. We all have our ideas. And they're all, of course, they're all right. I mean, mine are. I don't know about yours. But they're all right. And as a result, it makes it hard for us to a lot of times just stay on the same page or stay on mission. Or even worse, identify the mission we need to stay on. Um, so what I'm, I'm discovering is we, we need a little bit of reminder of what it means to lead and to follow. Um, if you miss everything else I say, you can write this down and then go sleep. Or go get your coffee. All of us are leaders and followers in the kingdom of God. All of us. There's the expectation that you will lead people to Christ. Every single one of us will lead someone to Christ. Then there's the expectation that we all follow Christ. We are disciples of Christ. That means we are a student of Christ. We're a follower of Christ. All of our life. We never graduate from being a follower. So we need some help in, in kind of being reminded, what is, it, what is God's expectation for us when we lead and what's His expectation for us when we follow? So that's just A and B of what I'm going to do this morning. In this Bible class hour, I'm going to look at what kind of leaders God wants. And then in the sermon, what kind of followers God wants. This is class. Raise your hand. Frown. You know, take out your tongue, whatever it is, and I'll, I'll, you'll get my attention, and I will, you know, you, you can ask questions or comment any way you want. Congregations are a mystery to be embraced, not a problem to be solved. I think a lot of times we do get into problems in churches, but many of those problems only God can solve, not any particular person. We can think our way through it, we can teach our way through it, but ultimately it's at the heart and soul of, our, of, of our, all of us as members if we're going to allow the Spirit of God to work through us. If I always get, and, and I, can, I can stand on this one, if I always get what I want, I am not being led by God. I'm 100% sure of that. Or I can put it the other way. If you're going to be led by the Spirit, remember Paul says, the church, if we're going to walk in the Spirit, let's be led by the Spirit. If you're going to be led by the Spirit, here's how what it does. 
The Spirit will take you where, where you don't want to go when you don't want to go there. I mean, think about it. You read your Bible, people who are led by the Spirit, did they go where they wanted to go or where they didn't want to go? I mean, just ask Moses. I guess you enjoy everything God led you to do, right? How many times do you want to climb Mount Sinai? He went up six times. He didn't like any one of them. And he was old when he did it. Oh, John the Baptist, I'm sure. He'd always dreamed of being beheaded for Jesus. Spirit's going to lead you where you don't want to go when you don't want to go there. Paul had a Macedonia. That wasn't his game plan. His game plan was to oh, he had his, you know, his mission strategy all set and it was perfect. But God let him where God wanted him to go. So if you if you think that your spiritual walk is going, to, you know, you're following the Spirit and you're always going where you want to go, you're not following the Spirit. It's just not happening. Which means there are times we're going to have to be good followers and good leaders, but in neither one of those cases does it mean we get what we want. We do what we want. We learn to grow and love what we're doing, but it it will not always be what we want. But once we get into it, we realize, I'm sure glad this was God's plan. It's, It's better than what I had in mind. So, the spiritual challenge in is leading God's people deeper into the heart of God during a crisis without becoming frustrated or bitter. Even all of us as leaders, whether you're leading in your home as a spiritual leader, uh, at work you want to be a spiritual influence or in a church, leading is not easy. Leading is really tough. Now, that we have three kinds of crisis that we're in where we definitely need leaders. You, I mean, God's design was that there was always a church. The church is not an accident. It is always a part of God's plan Acts 2.38, you're baptized. Four verses later, you're in fellowship. So, I mean, it all went together. You don't, you don't have a choice. When you become a child of God, you're in the family of God. You're a children of God, part of the body of Christ. That's God's plan. But you can't have a body without leadership at almost every level. But the, when that body has crisis, we need leaders to get us through it. Three kinds of crisis. One is the kind that just happen. Uh, this can ever. This could be a you know the depression, an economic crisis. It could be a more churches I've been working with some. A, a preacher will have a moral failure, and it creates a, a major crisis for the church. There's a financial crisis, a leadership crisis, contextual crisis, congregation. I mean, all these kinds of things, and they come about every seven years. I don't see anybody taking that as good news. But just on the average, every, and, and there, every now and then, I work with a church, and I say, you know what this church needs? It needs a good crisis. We've got to shake some stuff off the tree. We've got to kind of have, have a moment where, are we going to be committed or not? Because if there's no crisis, you don't have to decide, am I going to stay or leave? Am I going to engage or am I not? So a crisis is good. It kind of makes us rethink, rather than just coasting through things, Am I going to roll up my sleeve and be what God calls me to and learn in this situation? Or am I just going to get upset and back off? second kind is the kind we create. Changing preachers, worship, changing worship styles, starting a new ministry, failing to adequately communicate with the church. All of those are kinds of things that just we as leaders kind of create in a congregation. But the third one I'm finding is the most common a bunch of 
among a bunch of nice Christians. It's the, it's the crisis that is created by trying to avoid a crisis. Uh, you know what I mean? And you, if you're passive and you're married to somebody that's more forceful, you've probably heard your spouse say, you can't keep ignoring this. You've got to do something now. Anybody heard that? You know? And you just keep ignoring, keep ignoring. What happens then, it gets now so big, you can't handle it, and it would have been better to address it back when it was manageable. And so now we got a crisis from our effort to try to avoid a crisis because we try to be too nice to people. When we're really afraid to confront, we're afraid to challenge, when we're expected to do that. that that's part of the, the strength and muscle that comes with a healthy fellowship and a healthy relationship. But this is one of my favorite cartoons. You see what Moses is saying? That woodpecker has got to go. <laughs> you know, every now and then a church turns loose, a woodpecker starts, you know, pecking holes in the boat here and it could sink, you know. But sometimes we feel like this woodpecker has got to go. Hey, let me say something about the church here as a whole. This is, a, this is called a single cell church. Not a healthy single cell church at this point. It can be, but it's a single cell church with about 60 people at the core. These are your active members. You've got five elders and spouses. You've got 14 deacons and spouses. You've got ministry team and others who are actually involved in some... That's about 60-ish people that are really at the core. I'm probably looking at most of them right here that are right there at the core. These are guesstimates. The elders, deacons, staff, somebody can come up with a... I really think it's important if you're going to shepherd a church to know exactly who's in these categories. So you might want to come up with a specific list. Then you've got about 50 active members and another 50 passive members. Um, Here are my definitions. A passive member is someone who's been baptized and will come to church most of the time but only come to worship service and that's it. May not even give, but they go to church. And if you ask them, were you a member of church? Oh, I'm an active member of that church. But to them, it means I just go to worship service most of the time. Whereas an active member does all that, but an active member is also involved in at least one ministry. Teaching a class, cooking brisket, counting on Sunday, leading in one of the ministries, cooking brisket, you know, (laughs) what? You know, they're at least involved in one ministry and, and it's work. That's not easy, to, but it's, it's something that you're doing for the sake of the body. You're, you're doing your part. Whatever it is, you're using your gift in some way. Whatever that gift is, that's an active member. A leader, which would be at the core, the A, would be those who do all that, but they also assume responsibility or they develop a new ministry um, there's some, they just actually take responsibility. They're, they're go-to people. You can kind of count on them for doing what they say they're going to do. And they put some energy into it. Which is elders, deacons. And uh, I hope that you're always grateful for people in this congregation who serve in every way they serve. This is volunteer. This is volunteer. And we want to really be grateful for people who are willing to give priority to us as the body of Christ. Why is the single cell theme important? I'm in a church that's 
five, fifty, six hundred. We've had up to twenty elders. Four services on Sunday, plus Hispanic group, plus Cambodia. Six services. That's multi-cell. Multi-cell. That um, all the elders don't know everybody. They know groups. There's just multi-groups within the church, but not one core group. Whereas a, a single-cell group is generally one core group, often with key families. If it's a real church, it's, it's one extended family, and that's the only way to be a song leader in that church is to marry an elder's daughter. You know, you got connection. It's, it's, it's very much a family-related. And things that are done are almost... The decisions are made at somebody's kitchen table. In a multi-cell church, decisions are made in committees with multiple groups being represented. And a lot of churches have a hard time shifting from single, single cell to multiple cell and they never grow beyond 250 or 300. It's what's known as the 200 barrier. It, it doesn't... I've seen... I don't know how many churches that got to that point they built a larger building and never got past it because they didn't they kept well the negative way to say it is the church will go down to the size you can manage so if you're managing as if this is a 200 member church I don't care how big your building is you're still going to be 200 because that's the way you manage and lead the church but if you structure yourself for growth it you can I mean, you've got a great location and opportunities here. You could be a lot larger than you are. And a lot of it has to do with what, how you organize yourself at the core and your own philosophy. If everybody has to like everything and be at everything at the same time, that's single cell. When we're multiple cell, we hope half don't know what the other half are doing. <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's just much more complex and often a lot more diverse. Now, it also means when you're single cell, when there is, especially at the core, when there's tension at the core, it ripples out to the whole body. And so it's, it's vital that you maintain as much as you possibly can the relationships that are healthy at the core, and that becomes the base for what happens in the rest of the church. Let me put it another way. There's a possibility that there are a lot of people who are passive in this church and will never be engaged because the core isn't healthy. So before you judge someone for being passive and uninvolved, you have to still come back and look and say, okay, how healthy are we that we engage people at the core so that they know at the very core of this church, this is a welcoming church. I applaud you for being multi-ethnic. That's great. And, and keep being a welcoming church to anybody. I think the symbol of the cross is one of open arms. That's the church. You're welcoming. I don't care who you are, where you're from, you're welcome. If you want to walk with God, you want to have a heart for God, heart for this church, you're welcome. And I think that, that will be at the core all the way through the life and ministry church. Okay, here's what I call leader loop. Here's the challenge. How do we move people from passive members to active members? That's A. From active members to leaders, that's B. From leaders to mentors, that's C. And then D, going back and helping others do the same thing. 
When you become a leader in this church, that is not the end. You haven't reached the top of the pyramid, the top of the ladder. This is an upside-down kingdom. Where you're at is you now have some responsibilities and insights. The Spirit's been working in your life to where you need to use your insights to nurture and mentor others to come along behind you. We don't pull up the ladder behind us when we go. Some have said the boomer generation is bad about that. Wherever we've gone, we've pulled up the ladder behind us that nobody can follow. Uh, that's not the way we work in the body of Christ. We not only we add more ladders, we want more people to be involved in whatever way they can. And to, because we know that our own spiritual maturity is directly related to our level of involvement. It's not just related to head knowledge. It's related to how much I engage, how much of a heart I have for the church. Um, the way I see it with 14 new deacons, there's a lot of you now that have stepped up, some more than others, but to become more active followers or leaders within this church. And that's commendable. The challenge is going to be for the elders to become C and D. When elders do deacons' work, and deacons don't do much work, or you don't have many deacons, and it all falls back on the elders to deacon, and that's all they've done, and you have a long history of that, it's kind of hard to change the paradigm and the deacons actually deke, and then the elders do mentoring. Now, another word for it is shepherding. You do the shepherding. The elders need to be concerned about just the spiritual welfare and the souls of people and their encouragement, not managing businesses. You know, they shouldn't worry about the PowerPoint. They shouldn't worry about the fillings and grounds. They need to focus on spiritual life and where people are. And I think they want to. I've from my discussion with them yes, I think they've got the ability to do so and would do well. Just We just, in our heritage, we just haven't done enough of that. Part of it's theological issues and others. But the way God wants it is, He wants, look at what Paul told the church, the elders in Ephesus when he said, I want you to look out for your souls and then the souls of others. He didn't care about the church. There wasn't a church building up. To our knowledge, there was never a building until about the third century. They didn't have pews till the tenth century. So when when you have references to church, it wasn't to a building. It was to people and the dynamic of relationship between people. What do spiritual leaders do? I'm going to go to First Thessalonians five. If you want to turn your Bibles to First Thessalonians five. This is my favorite go-to place in looking at how do we, as members of the body of Christ, how do we serve as leaders? How do we lead? Um, while you're pulling your Bibles out, just a reminder, you remember that Paul had the Macedonian call? He went to Philippi. It didn't go real well. He went to Thessalonica, spent a little time. And then he went down to Athens and that bombed out. He went over to Corinth, spent a year and a half. But now he's in Corinth. He's concerned about what happened to the church in Thessalonica. The Titus and others are involved in, you know, kind of shuttling information. This was B.C. before computers and email. And so he gets a report. And now he writes back to the church in Thessalonica. And this is a young church. This is pre-elders and deacons. It's just a young church. But even in this young church, you already had people emerging to the level of leaders and concerned about the church as a whole. 
They'd already stepped up and assumed responsibility. And now he writes back to them in the very first letter, and it's one of the earliest letters Paul ever wrote, and he ends this letter with the concern about what kind of leaders and followers he wants them to be. So he says, Now I ask you, brothers, and some of you have in RSV, it says brethren, or brothers and sisters. And that is an accurate... It, it's not the word for just the men in the church. It's, it's, it's brothers and sisters. Right, so, and he does this... If you look at chapter 3, 4, and 5, look at how many times, Now I ask you, brethren. Like every few paragraphs, he says, And now brethren. And now brothers and sisters. And now... So he does it here... I think to get his point across, he's talking to every single disciple of Christ. This was his expectation for every disciple of Christ. So he says, Now I ask you, brothers, to respect those who do three things. They work hard among you, they're over you in the Lord, and they admonish you. It's hard work to lead anywhere, especially in America, because we're not very good followers. But the issue that he wants to make clear is leaders in the church are not above people, they're among people. You see, don't take that reference light in the sense they respect those who work hard among you. Yes, they're over you in the Lord, but the first thing he says, they're among you. They're a part of you. This is not some headquarters, you know, 500 miles away demanding something from you and taking money from you and all that. No. These are people from among you. What's the good news about that? You have involvement. They know you and everything. What's the bad news about it? You know them. Some of you didn't get that either. Is it, you want coffee this morning? I'm sorry. Why? Well, the good news is you're not having somebody from outside has nothing to do with this kind of micromanaging you and telling you what to do. But the bad news is you know them. They're men just like you. They're women. Just they got. Their weaknesses, they got their strengths. And so it's harder to respect them because you know they're just like you. Because they're, they're among you. But, but when it comes to the Lord, the spiritual relationship, you're willing to let them be over you in the Lord. To have spiritual responsibility. Even to the point of admonishing. Now how far do you think we would get today if any one of the elders pulled two of you out of our meeting and you go down there and visit and they kind of admonish you to get involved, you're a passive member and it's time for you to step up and do something, how would you take that? Oh man, I was taken to the principal's office today. Elders I know do very little admonishing in American churches. Very little. And why? Because we won't accept it. Basically we won't accept it. We take it as all negative when if I'm really concerned about your soul and I'm an elder here, I think I'm under obligation to at least sit down with you privately, as lovingly as I can, say, do you realize what you're missing? Do you realize the church needs you to do blah, blah, blah? Do you realize you need the church in your life for blah, blah, blah? You ever, ever, never had that conversation. You need it. And if you have had it and responded well, you're going to be grateful for that brother or sister who really cared enough about you to kind of risk that relationship to say, you need to do what God's calling you to do. And do the And then he says, 
Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. So who has the responsibility, according to Paul, of keeping the peace in this church? Is it the elders' responsibility? Look at the text. But be careful who you point to when things aren't going well. It's not just their response. When he says live at peace with each other, he's talking about us as a church living with peace with each other. It's not just the elders' responsibility in any church. Now, should they be concerned about it? Absolutely. And they put more energy and would, you would expect them to put more energy. When they admonish, it's going to be for the sake of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of Because they, they assume a lot of that responsibility. But at the end of the day, Paul's going to say, yeah, but what did you do as a member of this body? Because that's where he wants us to be just spiritually mature as we function within the body. Then verse 14 and 15. This is 1 Thessalonians 5. And we urge you, brothers. Now, this is... He's trying to be an example of what he's telling them to do. Urge... Uh, another translation says beg or plead. What, what do you have in your... Something other than NIV. We warn, okay? You what? Urge... Okay. Any other for chapter five, verse fourteen? We urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. What did he use for urge? Any other term? Okay. Okay. When he so this is this is Apostle Paul. He could have given a command, right? But when he's urging, he's basically pleading. He's just saying, you know, please, you know, as kindly as he can say, please do this. Here's something I'm really pleading with you to do. I want you to, and notice who's he talking to. Just the elders? Just the leaders? No, back to the same thing. Brothers and sisters. I want all of you to warn, uh, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. <laughs> Paul makes me mad every time I read him. Why didn't he say, be patient with as many as you possible? When you feel good, be patient. But when you're tired and stressed, it's okay. You don't have to be patient. Or, we're most patient with people who are like us. If you're in my family, I'm patient with you. But don't dare take on somebody in my family. I will not be patient with you. If you're in my tribe... And I'm going to be patient. I understand. I'm forgiving. I'm mercy. If you're not in my tribe, you're not like me. Whoa! Boom! We come unglued. So he press, he raises the bar pretty high, right? Be patient with some of you, or with everyone. Has he made you mad yet? And it's like I don't know how any of us can escape it. Because I'm not patient with everyone. And that's the, that's the tough part. The easier part, okay, let's take the idle, the timid, and the weak. I've got a little bit of time here. I go to ten, right? Okay. Why are people idle? Why are members idle? Why are, why are there passive followers of Christ? A lot of reasons. Immaturity. It could be... Um, they just don't know ignorance. It could be they're timid and shy. There's all kinds of reasons people are idle. It's just like a car that's idle. Everything's running fine 
It's just not going anywhere. And, and when it doesn't move, you don't even need a steering wheel. The steering wheel is of value only when the car is moving. And so we, God can't give direction to your life when you're just idle. But if you actively engage in serving God, if you actually get involved in the body of Christ, God can lead and guide and, and you can grow. And so if you're, what I would warn you if I were involved, if I knew you, I'd say, don't you think you need to get involved? Because until you do, you're not going to be able to learn this and this and this. You're going to know more about yourself, about others, and you're going to feel useful to God. Don't miss out on those blessings. Why are people weak? What do we do to the weak? We're just to help the weak. And the difference to me in warning and helping, I, when I warn, I'm telling you, you know, here are the consequences of this. When I help, I'm just going to kindly, mercifully walk beside you and just help get you through it, right? Why are people weak? Consequences of their own sin. They've been wounded and hurt. Um, sometimes this category is often people who have been overworked even at church. And they've now become spiritually weak when you would have thought they were spiritual giants and all of a sudden, you know, they kind of implode. And it's like, what's going on here? I didn't see this coming. Why are people timid? Well, if they're new, if they're of a different ethnic group, if they're young, teens, when they come in a group like this, can get real timid, but you're down with their group and it's like, whoa, who is this? You know, they're going to draw in sometimes. They're going to be very timid about it. So, how do you encourage the timid? Well, don't give them something you know they're going to not do well. Make sure that whatever they do, the steps they take, they're going to do well. And you cover their back and you do everything they can to help them do whatever they're going to do. You want them to have courage and do it well. And I hope everyone involved in ministry is always looking for people who are idle, timid, and weak to get involved in a ministry you're leading to help move people from passive to active followers. I can say a whole lot more about that. Um, I'm going to move ahead to this thing right here. How, this is just a little bit of skills training to be a better leader in the body of Christ for all of us. Uh, just a few things uh, to wrap up this morning. Because these are the kind of skills you're going to need if you do what Paul tells them to do in, Thess- in Thessalonica there. And if you're going to help the timid and so on, here's some skills. One, you need self-discipline. Here's some questions. Am I a disciplined person in the good sense of the word? Am I punctual in completing my tasks? Do I value the time of other people? Am I able to provide personal initiative for my ministry or must I be prodded and reminded by others? Am I able to exercise appropriate control of myself, my emotions, my use of time, my management of money, and so on? That's just self-discipline. And if I'm able to do this, then I'm able to be a good leader because people can count on me. If I cannot control my emotions, I'm angry when people don't think the same way I do or don't do things the way I do, I'm not much of an encouragement. In fact, I jokingly say it's really hard to kiss a porcupine. You know, it's just hard to do. You know, we've got to put the quills down. We've got to, again, be welcoming to people. And that takes some self-discipline at times because all of us have people that's hard to accept. I mean, I have my blind side. I have my, you know, certain things, the pet peeves that irritate me. And if I at least know what they are, 
I can defer to someone that's not a problem to, but it is to me. And when I don't have the option to defer, I'm just going to have to step up and be disciplined. I just can't do that. Even though I'd love to do it. My gut wants me to react this way. This is not a way to lead. Here's another way to look at it that stuck with me. I, I heard it when I was a teenager from an elder and one of those things that stuck. If everyone in this church is just like me, what would it be like? If everyone responded to this circumstance just like me, what would we be like? Maybe that'll stick with you. Because it's it's caused me to exercise some self-discipline at times when I didn't really feel like doing it. But I wanted to respond in a way that I thought everybody ought to respond. And then when I failed to do that, I was at least at times I've been more penitent of that and recognized that. Another thing that we do as good leaders is we listen. Uh, it's important if we lead someone to Christ. You cannot lead someone to Christ if you don't listen to where they are. Where are they spiritually? You want to understand their spiritual life. Where are they in their journey? You listen to them. We don't do all the talking. An evangelist is not someone who just does all the time. A good evangelist listens to people where they are to lead them to Christ. Good elders and deacons listen to people and what are their needs and what are their challenges. Do I listen to others with my ears, eyes, and heart or do I talk too much? Or do I spend my listening time shaping my own response to others who are talking to me? I've had this where I've talked to somebody. Ten minutes later, they didn't hear anything I said but the first sentence and they were trying to craft their response to that first sentence. And because they weren't listening, it would have been resolved in the next sentence or two. But they were locked on that first sentence. And then when they came out with that, I said, you didn't hear a thing I've said since then, did you? How do we listen? Another uh, is stress. How do you deal with your stress? Uh, when, uh, when we have stress at home, stress at work, we really don't like stress at church. That's just enough stress. But there are times when we're just going to have stress at church as well. And how do we cope? There are just times we cannot avoid stressful situations and times. But God can get us through that. I honestly believe God uses stressful times to teach us something. Paul said in Romans 5, suffering, stress and other things, produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope will not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit which He has given us. So when I have stressful times, I've got to learn to be thankful for those times, knowing that God is going to help me be stronger. Also, self-awareness. How open am I with myself about my strengths and weaknesses, likes and dislikes, and the way my past has influenced the way I behave in the present? Here's a rule of thumb in any kind of conflict in churches and home at work. In fact, it's created wars. We always, almost always judge ourselves by our intention and others by their behavior. And when we do, I always win. I had, I realized doing kind of marriage counseling, she'll come in and say, you know, I've been the best wife, blah, 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 but he has just been horrible. They're really, and she starts giving me all the things of his behavior. Now, her intentions, yes, were good. But, so you know what happens when I talk to him the next day. She's a fallen angel, and on all this, and he's been the best husband he could be. You know, I, I get the marketing thing from him. So really, okay, 
You both have had good intention, but your behaviors don't match your intention. So we've got to be fair in, even in our relationship with each other. We impugn motives. When something happens and we don't like it, we automatically interpret motives, and most of the time we actually miss the motive. We misread people. We're, none of us are very good at reading people. When you get really good at reading your spouse, then you can read all the other people in, in the church. Because we often don't even read our spouses right, who we've lived with a long time, every day. So how can we assume we can always know the motives and intentions of everybody else at church or anybody else at church? So be self-aware and just show grace and mercy. It will go a long way in helping us maintain the unity of the Spirit and bond of peace. The one real difference between a follower and a leader is followers cope with criticism. Even in the church, wonderful as we are, Christians can be very critical. And then when you lead, you have to be able to cope with criticism. And my theory is a lot of people will not lead because they can't cope with criticism. They just can't do it. Maybe because they were very critical themselves. Uh, John may have heard me say this. We have guys at School of Theology that try to get through school and never speak in chapel. I mean, you've got your professor there. You've got other guys there. And my theory is this. The, re- <laughs> the reason they don't want to speak in chapel is they don't know how critical they are if anybody speaks in chapel. And when you get up there, you realize this is not as easy as it looks. Only knees knocking, mouth is dry, hands are... I've seen all of that of guys who are fully grown guys speaking in chapel at 11 o'clock on Tuesday morning with 25 people there. Yeah. And the issue is they've been on... They've been so critical. Now they're going to get on the other end of it and you don't want Sometimes we can be so critical of leaders knowing how critical we are of leaders because we've talked to people that are critical leaders. We don't want to step in that pool and be criticized. Because we know the minute you step into that pool of being a leader, you're going to be shot at. Or crucified if we go to the first century. That's okay. It's okay. It will lead you to depend more on God. But I think the question we all have to ask ourselves as good leaders, am I able to give constructive criticism to others? That needs to be done. There needs to be a relationship where there can be open uh, open conversation, feedback. And how do I respond to others who criticize me harshly? Again, behaviors may not match intention. And I've just got to show grace in that. Decision-making, conflict, all of those are skills that you develop as leaders. And I think for anyone in the body of Christ, you look to elders and shepherds to help you develop those skills as you lead any kind of ministry. And you're not afraid to lead if you're not afraid to get someone to coach you in tough times. Whether it's conflict, criticism, or whatever it is. Here was Paul's view, which I, you know, he took his share of criticism. In fact, you know the Judaizers gave him grief almost everywhere he went. Almost everywhere. I mean, they were on it. They would not let him go. And so he says, like a good shepherd, the Lord stands beside us. The image, this image helped Paul with many a church crisis. But the Lord stood by my side and gave me strength. Can you picture Jesus standing right here by your side? And going, it's okay, Everett, you'll get through. Just puts his hand on my shoulder. When I want to quit, 
when I'm hurt, when I'm mortally wounded, that says, that's okay. Look at my hand. Look at my You'll get through this. And He becomes your strength. I hope I've given you some ideas. One, to encourage all of you to lead in whatever arena God has put you in, wherever you have people you can influence. You remember on that single cell, cell chart, what I did not talk about is the 75 people at D. You may recall seeing that. That is the people that are influenced by everybody in this church but are not here. That's your future sisters and brothers. That's people that, you're, that are in your family that know you. That's people at work that know you. That when good news comes out of this church, there are people that want to know about it. They're going to, they're going to be blessed by what you do as a church. And you want to lead them to Christ. And I hope some of these insights will, will bless you if you seek to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your body for your people who have been a part of our lives and bless us in so many ways. You're designed for the church to be beautiful, to be healthy, to be whole, to be a blessing in all of our lives. It's such a good thing. Forgive us when we let you down and forgive us when we don't make it what it needs to be. But Lord, please hear the intentions of our heart and the desires of our heart because we want your church everywhere to be a witness to how honorable and how good and how loving and how kind and merciful you truly are. Continue to purge us of things that disrupt the health of your body.